It's Tuesday, February 8th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The rollout of Pfizer's COVID pills has faced shortages and criticism that state health departments are not prioritizing those at the highest risk of serious illness. The Biden administration has purchased 20 million courses of the treatment, but has only been able to release 265,000 courses due to production delays. Benjamin Ryan, contributor to NBC News, joins us for a look inside the U.S. rollout. Next, Frontier and Spirit Airlines have agreed to a merger worth $6.6 billion that would make them the fifth largest airline in the country. The move will see them keep their ultra-low fare business model and cause some worry for other airlines who have not rebounded with business and international travel customers. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, joins us for more on this deal that could create 10,000 jobs by 2026. Finally, full frontal male nudity is going mainstream in Hollywood. With the rise of streaming platforms that are largely free from ratings rules, more men, including some big stars, are becoming more comfortable with bearing it all. Be warned, however, it may not be the real thing, as many times prosthetics are used. Ellen Gammerman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what it takes to make a nude scene happen. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What we're seeing is that only a few states are actually doing this and limiting the drugs to those very high-risk patients, which means that it's quite possible that in other states, without that kind of limitation, without that kind of prioritization, the drug simply isn't having much of an impact as right. it could. Joining us now is Benjamin Ryan, contributor to NBC News, and you can find his stuff at Ben Ryan Writer on Twitter. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about what's going on with these Pfizer COVID pills. When uh, Pfizer announced that they had these COVID pills that would help in the treatment of people that could get severely ill, everybody was uh, doing jumping jacks over. They were like, thank God we have more things that we can help treat people with. But right now what we're seeing and what we've seen kind of throughout the pandemic with rollouts of vaccines, other medications, it's very uneven. Pretty much every state has their own rules. Sometimes uh, they're prioritizing the people that are most vulnerable, most at risk. Other states are a lot more lax in their rules. And uh, what we're seeing is that it's kind of hard to come by these new Pfizer pills. So, Ben, tell us a little bit more about it, please. So, you know, we know that there's a great shortage of these pills. They take about six to eight months to manufacture. So Pfizer doesn't expect that there will be a robust supply until about April. The Biden administration has ordered and paid for 20 million doses, 10 million of which should be available by the end of June, and then the following 10 million by the end of September. So in the meantime, we're getting about 100,000 Paxlovid pills distributed by the federal government to the state health departments every other week in the face of a great wave and many people hospitalized, many deaths, et cetera. So I spoke to a lot of medical ethicists who said that in the face of such a shortage, you really need to limit the availability of such potentially life-saving medications to those for whom it would do the most good. And research suggests that for people who are the highest risk, we're talking about people who are immunocompromised, or people who are unvaccinated, are over 65, and especially if they, they have other health conditions that raise the risk of hospitalization and death for COVID. For those people, you would only need to treat perhaps about 18 of them to prevent one hospitalization and death outcome. And the, the farther you go down the tiers of risk, if you will, you go to the younger people, people who are vaccinated, who are boosted, that sort of thing, 
the higher that number needed to treat to prevent one of those hospitalizations and deaths becomes, and therefore the less of a public health impact the use of the drug can have. So what we're seeing is that only a few states are actually doing this and limiting the drug to those very high-risk patients, which means that it's quite possible that in other states without that kind of limitation, without that kind of prioritization, the drug simply isn't having much of an impact as right. it could. When they were doing these studies, they were being done in people that were unvaccinated because that's where they thought right. that it'd make the most impact there. So that's mm -hmm. why unvaccinated people are so high up on that list, too. When you do a study like this, in order to have a, a statistically significant result, you want to go into the, the patient populations who are at the highest risk, who have the highest likelihood of having the outcome that you're trying to prevent. So that's why a study like that would be done in those very high-risk patients. So it's a question, though, because... Will people who have a certain personality or whatever it's about their life or their lifestyle or something that's prevented them from getting vaccinated, will those people also be unlikely to take a medication that could save them from hospitalization and death when they're early on in these cores of COVID-19? Because you have to take Paxlovid within five days of symptom onset. So that's a big unanswered question that I'll be very interested to see in the coming months. But I spoke with a lot of doctors who are somewhat optimistic to say that there's a big difference cognitively in the attitudes that people have of taking a preventative that would prevent something that you might get versus you're sick now. Hi, doc. Please make me better. <laughs> a lot of doctors have said, I feel optimistic because that's just the way the human mind works. People are afraid of needles. There's something about being injected with something that freaks people out, but they're very used to taking pills. Even though it's still something going into your body either way, it's just a cognitive difference that people have that have made doctors a bit optimistic that the unvaccinated out there might be mm -hmm. at least willing to take this, this medication. You profiled a woman named Abby Robinson in your story mm -hmm. who basically had to call all sorts of pharmacies to see where she could get it. She, uh, I think she was in the Long Beach, California area. She had to end up going yeah. down to Orange County, which is kind of a drive in, in certain cases. And, you know, she was had to be basically in her sickened state and on the hunt for the medication. Luckily, there are a couple websites that people can look up. If you Google find a Paxlovid website, HHS, that's the Human Health and Human Services uh, Administration, Google HHS and find Paxlovid. You should be able to find these websites that will pinpoint at least where they've been delivered. But then you've got to call the pharmacy and make sure they actually have it because it could be gone by now. So, yes, it is. Uh, I can think of very rude, for, rude, rude and curse word for what it is, but it's a lot. It's very difficult. I interviewed one family. The husband to get Paxlovid for his wife drove 230 miles each wow. way to get uh, Paxlovid from a pharmacy in southern Georgia. He was driving from Atlanta. He drove nine hours round trip to get Paxlovid for his wife. So we're seeing a lot of this, but a lot of what's actually happening, though, is that people who might not be at the greatest risk of hospitalization or death from COVID, they're nevertheless getting prescriptions for these and then going to Great Lakes to get it. And they're leveraging the financial resources they have. I spoke with one woman who got found Paxlovid for her friend. She was kind of helping him out because he was very sick. And he paid a medical courier in California $470 to go pick up Paxlovid for him and drive 100 miles to his house in California. So it's sad that the people with the greatest wherewithal or the finances or the time who can speak English, whatever it is that gives you an edge, are those the ones that are getting yeah. it. And sometimes those advantages are not very well associated with actually being high-risk hospitalization and death. And so the, the disadvantaged populations of the country are being disadvantaged even further by this first-come, first-served system. Benjamin Ryan, contributor to NBC News, and you can find all of his stuff on Twitter at Ben Ryan Ryder. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
It's a fantastic day for Colorado because it just means uh, that Colorado's hometown airline is going to be be a major player from a competitive perspective and provide much needed competition. Joining us now is Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. We saw a new merger. This is going to be happening between Frontier Airlines and Spirit Airlines. They're the two largest low-cost carriers in the U.S., it's a deal worth $6.6 billion. They're now going to be the fifth largest airline in the country if everything goes ahead and gets approved. So some interesting moves on this. This is the first big merger we've seen since 2016. So, Leslie, what are we expecting out of this deal? Well, you do have the two biggest discount airlines, as you said, kind of coming together. Um, this is a business model that has been based on very aggressive expansion. You can kind of chart it all the way from maybe like after the financial crisis and the recovery and the bust in oil prices that has made flying a lot cheaper uh, since 2014, although we're going the other way now, to essentially expand around the country and various parts of the world, you know, as far south as Peru, offering no frills fares, cheap ticket, and you pay for everything else, your carry-on bag, your check bag, your seat assignment, and things like that. So um, it's had a lot of influence on uh, driving down fares in certain markets. And now the airlines that are larger than they are, they're going to have a really big competitor to deal with. Now, Frontier and Spirit have had their fair share of criticisms, sometimes bad press, right? When things go wrong, as we said, they're ultra low cost. Uh, so you have to end up paying for everything, check a bag, all that stuff. This is the business model they're going to continue with, though, the, the low fares. They, they want to just expand that, make more routes and open it up to more people. That is the idea. And this is a merger. This has to get through both the Department of Transportation and then the Justice Department. And the Biden Justice Department has been directed, essentially, to take a very close look at consolidation in various industries, you know, everything from food production to tech to airlines. And they've already sued American Airlines and JetBlue over their partnership in the Northeast, not even a merger. So that does kind of indicate that it, it is going to get a lot of scrutiny. And a big question that the DOJ is going to have to answer or that the airlines are going to have to show is that it's not going to drive up fares. So the, the combined Spirit and Frontier, sure, they can have a little bit more pricing power. But if they get away from offering cheap fares to their core customer, that could end up hurting them in the long run. But those things that you mentioned, I mean, very strict about fees for bags and picking your seat and kind of recovering from uh, like a, I don't know, a storm or something like that, because maybe they don't have the frequencies of larger airlines. You know, like everybody's favorite punchline is Spirit Airlines. But the practices that they've had over the years have been adopted by some of the major airlines like United and American. And, you know, you go to book a flight on American and, and sure, like if you get a regular economy ticket, you're getting your uh, your seat assignment. But some are blocked off and you have to pay even without extra legroom. You're having to pay for that for like a preferential uh, location on the plane. So a lot of these practices, you know, people kind of roll their eyes or make fun of it. But it's it's kind of become the norm. So this deal does come at an interesting time in the pandemic. There's a lot of other airlines that haven't completely gotten their footing back. You know, those that rely a lot on business travel or even international travel. So the pandemic hasn't been the worst thing for these low cost carriers, you know, people looking for deals and whatnot. And beyond that, you know, they see it as a real growth opportunity, obviously, for the big merger. But they say they're going to create 10,000 new jobs by 2026. So in four years time, will there'll be a lot more jobs with it, too. Right. And, and so 
further saying no furloughs expected, you know, adding 10,000 jobs. And one of the big challenges that airlines have had in, in recovering in the pandemic, you know, demand is coming back, especially for domestic leisure travel, but they don't have the employees to meet it. And sometimes they've been um, very hungry for revenue growth and kind of going after those customers, but then the employees aren't there to really support the operation. Pilots, highly skilled and trained, it's very expensive to train. Those pilots have hindered some of the growth plans of some of the airlines we've seen so far and and even cut back on on some routes, whereas a merger between Spirit and Frontier could maybe alleviate some of those immediate staffing issues, although it'll it'll take a long time to integrate the airline. Sometimes it could take more than a year, but demand is coming back. Those airlines did fare a little bit better in the pandemic, but it's been painful for all airlines. And still no (laughs) real word on what the new name, if uh, if they take a new name, right, to reflect both, uh, if they mash, uh, mash up the names or anything like that. We don't have that uh, part of it yet either. We don't. And and people on Twitter are trying to figure out if it's going to be Frerit or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Frontier or something. Um, so it's not clear what they're going to call it, where they're going to headquarter it. So, you know, Frontier is based in Denver and Spirit is based near Fort Lauderdale. But Bill Frankie, who is kind of one of the architects of this, who has previously invested in Spirit and now uh, is uh, a big backer of Frontier, is going to be the chairman, and that means it could be in Phoenix. So who knows? And, uh, you know, it'll take a few months for them to figure that out. And and once they do that, just kind of merging their staff, their technology, booking, websites, all that stuff, it's going to take months and months, even with Alaska and Virgin, it, it took over a year. Leslie Josephs, airline reporter at CNBC, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And the intimacy coordinators are also there for the crew because it's a two-way street and sometimes the crew can feel quite awkward between takes when actors don't necessarily cover up. Joining us now is Ellen Gammerman, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Ellen. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's talk about kind of a shift that we've been seeing in Hollywood. We're starting to see some more nudity, but more male nudity, full frontal nudity. We're seeing this in uh, films with uh, Bradley Cooper, Benedict Cumberbatch. But uh, I guess male actors are getting a lot more comfortable with it. It's also kind of a reaction for more equality, oddly enough, <laughs> to get more nudity out there, uh, you know, I guess for men as opposed to just women. It's kind of a commonplace thing now for women, it seems like. So I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with this. So, Ellen, walk us through some of this. What are we seeing? Yeah, sure. Well, it used to be that when you saw full frontal male nudity, it was kind of shocking in a way that it wasn't for female nudity. And the movie might even have an NC-17 rating, and it might be talked about up front as a big sort of controversial thing about a movie. But now it's just happening in movie after movie and streaming series after streaming series. And part of it is because of these streaming platforms. They don't have to abide by ratings rules, and they are by and large. And so they're just kind of going for it with what they're putting on and movies are keeping pace as best they can with these performances. I think actors believe that are more authentic for the actual exposure and vulnerability that they say they're showing by not having clothes on for certain kinds of scenes. 
Now, let's talk a little bit about how these scenes are put together, because that's pretty interesting. So there's a lot of conversations that go on between the stars themselves, directors, producers. And then this I didn't know, somebody called an intimacy coordinator who kind of helps uh, smooth out all the rest of the deal that's going on there. Right. So nude scenes involve so many conversations from the team of the studio and their high-level executives and the actors' team of representatives. They first talk about what's going to happen. And then when you get closer to the actual filming of the nude scene, you have what's called an intimacy coordinator. It's someone who, they don't have to be on set, but more and more, especially post Me Too, they really are pretty much most sets that have any kind of nudity. And they talk to the actor, they prepare the actor for exactly how many cameras will be in the room, how many people will be in the room, how many monitors, what's going to happen to the film, what's going to happen to the outtakes. Is there a still from the scene that can be used in a billboard? All kinds of questions around their comfort, and it gives actors another chance to back out, I suppose, if they really don't feel comfortable or tweak the arrangement in some way. And the intimacy coordinators are also there for the crew because it's a two-way street, and sometimes the crew can feel quite awkward between takes when actors don't necessarily cover up. You mentioned there's this kind of unwritten rule for privacy that, you know, when a nude scene is being done and the actor comes out, you know, everybody else in the crew that's not directly involved, right, they'll turn away to give them the privacy that they need. And and it's kind of vice versa, too. Sometimes, you know, the actor should put a robe back on. Sometimes they don't. Uh, So there, there could be a lot of awkwardness in it. One thing that complicates it also is that nude scenes typically are filmed when they shut the air conditioning off to help the actors feel more comfortable, not be freezing cold, which means that it gets very hot quickly on the set. Everyone begins sweating. (laughs) And so the actors might not be in a hurry to cover back up because they're just so sweaty and exhausted. (laughs) Oh, no. Uh, that's uh, that would be some great behind the scenes, I guess, right? Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so, and then to you know uh, another point, right? So it's not always what you're seeing is uh, is true to form, right? There's uh, the use of a lot of prosthetics that happen, especially with uh, some of the male actors too. It's amazing how realistic these prosthetics have become, and also any doubt that you might have can be erased in post production, and and things can look very real and indistinguishable. In fact. I talked with some intimacy coordinators who said they would not be able to tell the difference between real and fake once the movie is on the screen. And sometimes it's a prosthetic because the reason that you're showing the anatomy is for a narrative purpose. There's going to be something different about it, like a comedic effect or something like that. So in those cases, they use prosthetics, but it's also just certain actors feel that is what they call a costume piece, just one added layer that makes them feel just a little bit more comfortable if it's not really them. Uh, Well, you know, just uh, for all the audiences out there, right, uh, get ready to see some more of this possibly. So uh, either enjoy it or beware. (laughs) Ellen Gammerman, (laughs) reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>